Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. I'm very pleased to welcome the director of this wonderful movie, Source Code. Please welcome Duncan Jones. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to get a picture <laughs> so I, I could tweet it to everyone. He's been busy tweeting about, about the museum, so if he starts doing that during the discussion, yeah, don't worry. Sitting it's over not, here. Yeah. What's your Twitter um, handle or name? Uh, so um, Manmade Moon. Manmade Moon, so you could follow or you could tweet to him now, I guess. So um, the movie, like right from the beginning, um, it's sort of a, this movie it sort of pays homage in a way to Alfred Hitchcock. It makes you think of Hitchcock and North by Northwest just with the music at the beginning and the movement and action. Uh, so it's a very different tone than the first movie you made, which is Moon. So could you talk a bit about you know, what, you, what type of movie you set out to make? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a very, very different experience, obviously. Uh, Moon, Moon was something very personal that I, that I wrote and with, with uh, Nathan Parker. And, um, and uh, this was a script which was sort of introduced to me and I sort of came on board as a, almost a gun for hire in some ways. Yeah. Um, but... You know, when I was reading the script, there was just so much, so so many ideas just coming out all at once, and um, the idea of a, of a of an ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances sitting on a train across from a from a mysterious dame, it just it just felt like a Hitchcock movie to me. Yeah. So, other, other than the science fiction ideas, you know, it felt right. <laughs> and so, working with a script that was not your own, yeah. what did you feel that that you could bring to it? Uh, you know, what were some of the things that you um, you know, added to it in terms of the style or yeah. tone? Um, well, you know, Jake, Jake was actually the person who introduced me to the script. He, mm-hmm. he gave it to me. He'd seen Moon, and we'd had a, had a meeting, and I very much wanted to work with him. Um, I think he's a, an amazing actor. I really do. I, I'm a huge fan of his. <laughs> pretty, good, pretty good performance in this, too. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, he said, you know, he, he, I think he saw similarities between Moon and the source code script that I didn't really notice. And when I was reading it, I was getting very excited about how different it was. Right. And um, we, uh, yeah, I, I, one of the, the, my main take on the script was that, you know, it's got, a, it's got amazing action. It's got a wonderful pace to it, a, a re- really well-honed structure. Um, but I found that the tone of it was quite serious, the, the draft that I read. And my big take, the thing, my, my, the thing that I wanted to, to tweak was, the, was lightening the tone and trying to find ways to inject some humor into the film. Right. Um, and that was, you know, that was my big addition to it. Which was a trademark of Hitchcock, of course, as well. I mean, he's also making a film, like in North by Northwest, it's yeah. about a character who loses his sense of identity. Yeah. Cary Grant doesn't, sort of doesn't know who he is anymore, yeah. but it's, it's a lightweight film, too. A- again, I think that that's kind of where, in those small ways where we had the opportunity to, to, to pay homage to Hitchcock, we tried to s- sneak them in there. There's the opening title with a sort of very graphic line. There's the way that Jake is dressed. But basically every head of department had an opportunity to sneak something in, in there. <laughs> so so for, for wardrobe, it was, the, it was the way that Jake was dressed as a school teacher. And for, you know, there's the opening titles. Then there's obviously the, 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 the uh, score. Um, and even from the production design, the, 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 the train station with the clock tower and yeah. another clock on the platform, there was an opportunity to try and get that, that shot. Tell us about the, about the performances and about your work with, with uh, Jake, because it's so interesting to see how the character changes, you know, and, and how um, 
I love the first scene when, he, when you realize right away that he doesn't know who he is. Yeah. And you, the audience has to sort of figure it out with him. Um, well, you know, Jake, Jake and I really wanted to work together and, and, and we discussed the script and, and I, made, I, I told him my suggestions as far as trying to sort of lighten the tone. Um, I think collaboratively we had, we had a, a lot of fun. I mean, we had a week of rehearsal time before we started shooting the film and we actually started with the, uh, the, the, the stuff on the, in, on the train, inside the train. So we had a week of rehearsals with Jake, myself and Michelle Monaghan to really, you know, and work out and nail down what the structural necessities were of those scenes because it was confusing. And I think for each of our main principal actors, there was huge acting challenges. Um, for, for Jake, it's the, it's the obvious ones. I mean, he's carrying the film and he has to go through this, this quite complicated um, arc. But for, for Michelle in particular, the, the challenge is that she has this eight-minute segments, which is repeated throughout the film. She has a, an arc that she's trying to build over the course of the entire film but, but she has to break that arc down into, into segments which always start at A and end at a different, you know, A, a B, A, C, A, D, A, E over the course of the whole film. So you still want to have a progression and you still, at the end of the film, want to feel that she's changed, but she's got a much smaller period to, to change over. Yeah. And then how did, how did you deal with some of like the sort of logic issues and um, complicated issues about time travel? You know, there is, um, I mean, the basic idea... Um, way that I understand it is that you can't really, you can't really go back in time and change the yeah. past. That there maybe will be a time in the future when people can travel into the future. You know? um, well, it's a very easy way to travel into the future. You just go to sleep for a few hours <laughs> and all of a sudden you're there. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll try, I have to try that, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> um, what, what, what Ben Ripley was, came up with and I thought was really kind of a a neat conceit, a science fiction idea, is that the source code was something that was misunderstood by the people who'd even designed it. And that that what they believed to be the case was actually an access or a creation of a parallel reality each time it was used. So that kind of all of a sudden opens up the possibilities of, of of how this thing worked. It's not only that you're creating a parallel reality, but you're sort of traveling... You're traveling backwards and creating a parallel reality. So back to the moment, these eight minutes, which are on on this train, yeah. and that sort of that idea, sort of setting that up, was a was a gave us all sorts of opportunities to kind of run with it. Um, yeah, it seems like a film that must have been incredibly carefully prepared, just because of the the um, you know the spe- the special effects and the way that you're filming on the train. It seems like it would take a lot of planning and storyboarding. Uh, at the same time, it has a real sort of looseness to it. Because we didn't even talk about the chemistry that the, that your that Michelle yeah. Monaghan and Jake have. I mean, that that spark they have is really important to the film. Well, I mean, I was hugely yeah. hugely fortunate that that I was able to assemble a, a cast of really top yeah. top tier actors. And uh, beyond Jake and Michelle, we obviously have Vera Farmiga, who's an amazing actress, and Jeffrey Wright, who I who absolutely love. Um, and uh, you know, I, Moon Moon's done a lot of good for me, <laughs> and the fact that those actors had seen that film—that's yeah. why I was able to get these people to come on board. So, yeah, because of Sam Rockwell's unbelievable performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the fact that Kevin Spacey was willing to squeeze himself into a robot box <laughs> for an oh, that's entire you, movie. That's how you did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so, what was it? You, you said that you didn't in the beginning see similarities to to Moon. Yeah. But obviously there, there are so many things. Like, so after the fact, what did you sort of learn about, about source code? Maybe? Well, and, and to be honest, it was, it, was, it, was Paul, it was the legendary Paul Hirsch who was the editor on the film. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, Paul Hirsch edited Empire Strikes Back, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 
um, Footloose. Uh, yeah. What else? He won an Oscar for Ray. And uh, there's one that was the other, Mission Impossible as well. And he's doing the new Mission, Mission Impossible right now. There's actually a load more films, but those are the ones that I can sort of get off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, he was the one who sort of picked up on the fact that, that there were similarities with Moon and he started, you know, mentioning them. And, and I became increasingly disappointed in my lack of creativity <laughs> and the fact that <laughs> I was going back to so many ideas I'd already addressed. But um, ID- identity and... But that's and, what great directors do. I mean, that, they... Yeah, but they not re- after two movies. Hopefully you've got more than two movies worth but of you'll ideas. Make, you're going to make some more, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the question of identity and the idea of an authority... Um, that, that is taking advantage of, a, of an individual who's, who's in a situation where they can't really get out of it. Um, yeah, so I guess, I guess those are the, 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 the more obvious similarities. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a bit about, about the ending, you know, what your thoughts were, if there was any evolution about how the film, sure. the film ended? <laughs> um, hopefully some people will in, enjoy it and, and get it, and other people will, at least it'll give them food for thought or something to discuss, even if they hate it. Um, <laughs> but I, I pushed for the ending that we have, just before anyone you know, is, is, is wondering about that. Um, I, I am a science fiction fan and, and geek, and, and I felt that there was this, this you know, this, this, because you set up this great idea of or this the great con- science fiction conceit, there was, there was this loose thread that just didn't, wasn't addressed in, in, one, in the script ending. The script ending was very romantic and sweet and, and in my opinion, a little Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of disappear off in um, happily ever after and that's the end of the movie credits roll. And, and I just felt like, you know, okay, so Coulter Stevens has taken this leap into a parallel reality. Now he's in a, in, a, in a reality, which is just as real as the one he's come from, where he's stopped the train blowing up. He's t- taken over the body of Sean Fentress, who is now dead, <laughs> permanently, without a bomb going off. So there's a little ethical gray area there. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 which, and also the fact that now he's stopped the bomb going off means he's never been sent, to the, sent on the mission in the first place. So back at the facility where Goodwin, Goodwin and Rutledge work, there is a Coulter Stevens locked up in a box being prepared for a first source code mission who could be there in perpetuity. And really he feels a responsibility to try and save this Coulter Stevens who's in, a, who's in, this, in this parallel reality. So, so you have two there. Another ethical inter- interesting point though is that every time Coulter Stevens gets sent to, through, through the source code and fails at his mission, he is now creating a new reality where a terrorist event is killing hundreds of people. So maybe they should have thought about that because they're killing people. Right. <laughs> okay, let's uh, take some questions from the audience. So raise your hand if you have a question, and I'll repeat them just to make sure everybody hears. Here. So uh, back in the middle there. Yeah. Uh, first, I want to say I really enjoyed the movie, so good job. Thank you. Go ahead. That, that's yes, two of you. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to ask. Um, I've been following basically the development of your career because I'm stalking you. <laughs> um, I was wondering. Um, you know, you've been trying to get mute off the ground for yeah. a while, um, and I was wondering if you feel like um, I was happy when I saw this that a lot of your trademarks from Moon seem to be here, which you kind of discussed about the themes and stuff. And I was wondering if. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe uh, you think that this could help. 
So the question is about the project Mute, which is uh, people have been hearing about for a while. Yeah. Is something that that you're interested in doing? Um, I, I won't belabor the point, but but Mute is a very difficult sell. Um, one of the biggest, well, there's there's two main problems with Mute that that make it a difficult film to get made. One is it's a science fiction film which doesn't rely on a particular science fiction conceit or idea. It's just it's a film noir. A bit like Blade Runner, although Blade Runner obviously had you know the replicants. It's a it's a film noir that just happens to take place in the future. So it's you know for 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 film investors, it's like why are we you know why are we setting this film in the future? Can't you just do it now? It'll be much cheaper and easier to do. Um, <laughs> it's like no, no, that's not the point. <laughs> um, and and secondly, um, and this one I completely understand. And 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 when when you're trying to get a film made, especially these days, at a at a budget. And, and by a budget, I mean more than $5 million, like we did Moon. Um, you need an actor of a certain level to bring in the financing, to sort of make, make the financiers feel confident that the, mil- the film is going to make enough money to, to make it all back. Um, to find an actor who is willing to put their career on the line, because they're doing that every time they do a movie, to put their career on the line for a main protagonist who doesn't talk at all is, is difficult, understandably. And... Um, uh, it would be, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not so keen to get it made that I'm willing to rewrite Mute for the Mute to talk. <laughs> Although it has been suggested. <laughs> can't he just like, can it be voiceover? Can't he just be sort of, no. <laughs> so, so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to try and make it as a graphic novel first, um, which was, a, a, you know, seems to be the way to get things made these days. And, and also for those people who are interested in seeing Mute, even if I don't get to make it until I'm in my 80s, at least people will get a chance to sort of see the story for themselves in, in, in one form. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to do another science fiction film anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> so because it ends where he's alive and he never, we don't see him ever doing the source code or has not yet initiated mm. This could become a TV series. Oh, so, <laughs> because it ends with him alive. It could, uh, he's suggesting that this could become a TV series. Yeah. And thanks for a sequel. Uh, is that a consideration? It, it's, it's, it was not a consideration, although when I suggested the ending, the producers got very excited, obviously. <laughs> but obviously, I had my reasons for doing it, and it wasn't anything to do with sequels or TV series. Although, speaking of TV series, I hope you picked up the little um, the cameo in, in the film by Scott Bakula from Quantum Leap which, uh, as, the, as the voice of uh, Jake's father so <laughs> <laughs> okay right over here hmm. do you think that technology like the source code should exist and could it, you know, would it, could it do more harm than good I think that this particular technology the the, the the ability to create entirely new realities is way, way too big a responsibility for, for, for human beings to, to have. So, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of the idea of, of this technology working. But I'm not a technophobe. I love technology, and I do think that technology will be our salvation. Um, I just don't think that this particular one is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right over here. I'm sorry to ask such a geeky question. Yeah. But in Moon... Yes. Oh, okay, we're going to moon now. Did the astronaut who's on the Earth uh, know that his clone was up there? Um, it's, you've been holding this question for a while. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I am happy to allow interpretation on this particular point. 
Um, I, I would imagine, though, that the, um, the machinations that would be required to have Sam Bell um, go through all of this and not have him know what's going on are too great to believe that he was, wasn't in on it. The original Sam Bell must have been in on it. Basically, the idea is that the guy who has obviously sold his soul and, and bought a beautiful house for his, you know, for his wife and, and daughter, and, and that's really, you know, he paid for it by agreeing to this, this situation. Okay, back there. Yeah, Go ahead. In the uh, scene where Jake uh, jumps out of the train, can I ask you how you did that? It looks so real. Oh, the scene where Jake uh, jumps out of the train, how did yes. you film that? That yeah. looks very real. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, that's where I got a chance to really geek out because um, <laughs> I'm a, you know, I, I obviously was very, very limited by my budget on my first film, but it, it gave me some opportunities to sort of try and think creatively about how to do things. On source code, although the budget was bigger, we still had to be fairly creative on, on how the money was spread and where we really sort of went for our, our big moments. I worked with an amazing VFX supervisor, a guy called Louis Morin from Montreal, and, and we basically picked our moments where we were going to kind of go to town um, with the money that we did have. And that, that was one of the shots that I really wanted to do. Um, it's a combination of live action where, where Jake Gyllenhaal jumps off of, uh, of our train film set onto a crash pad and literally the moment his toe hits the ground, we went to what's called a, VF, uh, a virtual stuntman, which is a, 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 a computer-generated version of Jake who has f- uh, enough physics that they can actually collapse and roll in a, human, in a human-like way. And then that converts back to uh, live-action Jake about two and a half rolls into the role, and so Jake finishes off the role. Now, a virtual stuntman has never been used this close up to camera before, and we were literally chasing, you know, playing chicken with the technology um, in the hopes that the technology would catch up by the time we had to do our post-production. And, and fortunately, we worked with an amazing, amazing guy who was able to, uh, you know, uh, fulfill this dream of mine to, to use a, a virtual stuntman this close to camera. But the, the whole shot, the whole sequence is actually an homage to a computer game called Grand Theft Auto. Um, <laughs> you're laughing? I'm heartbroken. <laughs> uh, being a bit of a geek myself and a gamer, that, this was, uh, this was um, you know, I, th- there's this great thing in computer games where you obviously don't have to cut around the action in order to hide your stuntmen. And, and, and I wanted to do that shot in a film where the camera stays with him the whole time, literally as he jumps out of the train. So this, this is a camera, by the way. Um, the, cam- <laughs> the camera rotates around him as he jumps off the train and pulls out and he jumps towards camera and does that, does that roll right in front of us. And you can actually see all the cuts and bruises appearing as he, as he rolls. What was the learning curve like for you, like for you, like doing so many special effects? And I think all of the, like everything we see out the window and the train is yeah. like put in later. So yeah, you know, Moon well, it's not quite, you know not in that Moon, skin. Moon had about four hundred special effects shots. Yeah. In fact, for a lot of our wider shots, well, there was lots of digital set extension, and then for, for the character Gertie in the wider shots, we had a CG version of him and all the close-ups. He's a he's a model. Um, but I guess I, I'd worked in commercials before I, before yeah. I worked in, in films and had the chance to do some, some pretty, you know, uh, f- uh, some use CG and use a lot of uh, yeah. effects work. And that kind of is where I got my, my, ex- my experience and ground, mm-hmm. grounding in that. Yeah. And that was thanks to Tony Scott, right? Isn't he the one who, who helped Yeah, you? he was the one who suggested that I, that I go off to film school and leave graduate school where I was suffering trying to pursue a, a, a graduate degree in philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't okay. going to take. I was never going to be a teacher. <laughs> well, but you got some philosophy into the Yeah, I managed to squeeze anyway. into Moon, a little bit yeah. into source code. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> In the back. Uh, aside from some of the obvious references to uh, 
uh, Quantum Leap and some other notable uh, science fiction films. What are some of your uh, most influential or favorite science fiction films? What, what are some of your favorite science fiction films? Um, you know, it, 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 it kind of changes all the time and it depends where my head's at and what I'm sort of working on or, or you know, I, to be honest, every film I like is my favorite film ever every time I see it. <laughs> um, but, but Blade Runner is always at the top of the list. I mean, Blade, Blade Runner is, is, is the greatest science fiction film ever made. Um, uh, yeah, I'll state that definitively. <laughs> um, I, I really believe, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing film and you feel like if you were to just pan the camera off of the, of the actors and follow... You, you, first of all, you'd still be in that world if you panned the camera off. That's what it feels like to me. And, I, and it also feels like if you followed any one of those people wandering the streets, you'd probably have an amazing story in its own right. It's just the most fully realized and, and believable science fiction world I've, I, in, in any film for me. Hmm. What was the transition like um, going from Moon to, say, something like this with a much bigger budget? Like, How do you prepare? I assume you had to sit down with the and pitch your ideas and compete with other Yeah, what well, was the transition like moving from a relatively small film like Moon to big, uh, you know, yeah. much, much bigger budget? Um, well, the, the huge difference in my particular case is that, is that Jake brought me on board. So all of a sudden, it was kind of a, it was a package deal. You know, if you want to do the film and you want Jake in it, you need Duncan to direct it, which kind of gave me some leverage that I think a lot of directors trying to make that transition don't necessarily have. So that helped a lot. I also had, you know, we talked about Paul Hirsch a little bit. As soon as I had hired Paul Hirsch to do the movie, Paul sort of took me aside in a very fatherly way and said, I'm your editor. I don't work for the producers. I don't work for the actors. I work for you. And he was a man of his word. So throughout the process, he was, he was on my side. So I had a pretty strong core team there backing me up, um, which made things a, a lot easier. But at the same time, you are working with a lot more money and you do have a responsibility to you know, bring people with you. you know, there's, a, there's a lot of people involved. and, and, and you, it, you know, I guess it's the difference between uh, driving a motorboat and piloting an oil rig. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. You, have, you, you can make small changes, and, you, and it takes a long time to get those changes through. Um, but you know, as, long as, you, as long as you let everyone know, you know it's, it's a lot more like advertising. And when I used to do advertising, you have clients and you have agencies and you have, a whole, you have a whole area. There's a whole bunch of chairs and a monitor just for them to watch what you're doing. And then you have your own little private area so you don't have to deal with them. But every time you want to make a change or you're about to shoot something, you go over there and you explain, this is what I'm doing, this is why I want to do it, you're going to love it, it's going to look like this. And, um, and, and you, sort of, you have that kind of negotiation and, and, and bring them with you. And, and it wasn't like advertising completely, but it was a little bit more like that. When we were doing Moon, it was me, Sam Rockwell, and my producer, Stuart Fennigan. And if we wanted to do things, we just changed it. You know? That's how we worked. You must have spent a lot of time in the editing room. The editing on this film is so intricate, and, and um, every shot is so important. And the way that yeah. you keep condensing the sequence uh, is amazing. So were you, are you there every... Oh, no, yeah, I was there the whole time. I, I, I don't understand how you can you know, shoot a film and then not be there while it's being put together. You know, I mean, even even with the amazing Paul Hirsch, yeah. I you know I don't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do it. I want to be there. Um. <laughs> and then just one other thing I want to ask was the uh, you know we talk about the science fiction aspect, but there is this romantic story at the center uh, and this relationship that develops, and it's you know strange because he you know she's he's not who she thinks he is, and, and the way that that is able to yeah. actually develop. And I think you've said that that's something you discovered as you worked on the film, like how strong this relationship 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we knew we knew up front that Michelle was going to be fantastic. I mean, I'd seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and and she right, was yeah. uh, giving as good as she got with uh, with Robert Downey Jr. and yeah. Val Kilmer. So, I mean, if someone can do that, I knew that she was going to be able to to work with this. But there was a really good chemistry, I think, between yeah. Jake and her, and 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 with a minimal, you know, I mean, it was it was it was a slight it was a slight romance, but it was there, and and I think her and Jake were really able to squeeze everything out of it and and, and make it feel feel believable, especially within those eight minutes. Yeah. Okay, time for a few more. So, over there. Um, Vis-a-vis uh, Blade Runner, number one, um, would you say this is your director's cut or you think there may be a director's cut in the future? <laughs> and whether alternative endings filmed that could be on a DVD in the future? Is this the final version where we see director's cuts and different editions of the source code maybe on a DVD? Um, I, I think this is I think this is it. I think this is the this is the film that, that I'm happy to release, and I and I don't think I would go back and, and try and change anything. Um, there was an alternative ending that was tested and tried, and it was the the producer's ending, the romantic ending, and it was wrong. <laughs> and uh, and and I'm glad that we've gone with this one. I really am. Um, yeah, that's that. But part, and part of the funnier is that there's not a wasted minute. You feel it's like a totally yeah. I, tight, I should, that's the yeah. point. That's what I was going to say. Is is uh, Jake, Jake was available for a, for a window of time. I mean, he just finished Prince of Persia. He was going to go off and do the press for the Prince of Persia, you know, worldwide um, um, PR. And and during that window of opportunity that we had to, to to shoot Source Code, we really, you know, it, it was a squeeze, and we got everything that we needed, but probably not anything bonus. In fact, things had to be pared down to really make sure we got the absolute essentials. So I, I don't think there really is the opportunity. I don't think there's the material to do any kind of other cut. This was. You know, there were some timing issues just to make sure things didn't feel flat at any point, but there wasn't any bonus scenes or anything like that. Okay, uh, up there. Um, so the Air Force base is in Nevada, but I presume that Sean Fentress's body is still in Chicago, at the, at, you know, right at that time. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you had any impressions of the technology that would allow them to link the consciousness over that. That was just what I was wondering most about is the distance. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, just about the technology of the link between Nevada and Chicago. It doesn't seem like that's that big a stretch once you get to this well, I, stage. I'm, I mean, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the, yeah. the original source code was on AT and T, and then they moved to Verizon to ensure they had the bandwidth. <laughs> it's definitely not T-Mobile. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Okay. Over here. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering how you, like, what, what did you say to him to get him to talk like that? Yeah, well, Jeffrey Wright, who gives a great performance, yeah. uh, you know, how, how did you work with him and develop that? Well, you know, Jeff, Jeffrey Wright is, is, is an amazing actor. To me, he kind of reminds me of Sam Rockwell. He's one of those kind of really underrated but incredibly talented guys um, that, that I just love seeing whenever he's on screen. When I have the op- having the opportunity to work with these people, you know, all, all four of these principal cast, um, I really do consider it my responsibility to give them uh, uh, an environment where they feel that they can do what is sort of in their head. And, and, you know, I hire the best cinematographer I can. I, I hired Don Burgess on this particular film. I hire the best editor I can. If I'm hiring the best actors, it seems kind of bizarre for me to tell them what to do. 
I, I, I try and give them an environment where they can do the, the best that, that they're obviously talented enough to come up with. Now, if something's really not working, I'll, I'll give them suggestions. And, if, and, if, and uh, you know, like with Jake, I had an amazing time where I would, you know, we would capture the performance that he wanted to give, and then I'd give him suggestions, and we would take it in slightly weirder, more surreal directions. And some of that footage was, was really good, and we actually put it in the film. Um, but really, it's about giving them an environment to do what, what they have in their heads uh, as long as it sort of fits, fits the film. I think Jeffrey had this idea of what, what he wanted to do, and there was some, some real-world personalities and characters that he was sort of loosely um, sort of basing them on, sort of an amalgam of these different, of the different people. And um, I just kind of went with it. I thought, yeah, this is, this is kind of cool. This, it's such a, it's, again, it's one of these slight roles that could, could really easily just disappear and, and I didn't feel that that was fair to bring a, an actor like Jeffrey Wright onto a project and then have him just completely di- disappear into the, into the background. Okay. Uh, we'll take one more. So go ahead. Um, I love the reveal when you, we learn that his voice is actually being, you know, that she's reading it. Yeah. Was that originally there, placed there, or did you play with it throughout the development, like earlier or later? Yeah. So the reveal where she's reading his voice, did you, when did that come about? In the yeah, funnily process? enough, that, that wasn't actually in the script. That was, um, that was something I just, I, I just thought there was an opportunity to add another little you know, uh, re- reveal um, at that moment. I like the idea of building some reveals. So we have that one, then we obviously have the, the reveal of the body um, later on. Um, the body was a funny one, actually, because <laughs> you know, we, we, were, we were set on a particular rating, so it needed to be... It needed to be gory enough that it was really clear that he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> but, but not so gory that we couldn't get our PG-13. <laughs> well, okay, if you make um, two more films, you can get a retrospective here at the museum. So um, please come back. I'll after. keep working. I'll okay. keep working. <laughs> but um, thanks so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.